Welcome to America's Top 40, October 15th, 2016 before we get to that, let's talk about... I mean, anytime Rush is in the news, there's like current events in the Rush world. We should talk about it. Uh, it's kind of rare lately that Rush is... There's any Rush news because they're sort of just doing their own thing now at their own pace. Uh, so this thing comes out that Alex Lifeson said this, Alex Lifeson said that, and listen, just... I said it a while ago, I think in late fall... Of 2015, when the internet decided it was going to make a big deal about Neil Peart retiring, and you can go back and listen to that episode. It's called I think it's called um, Alex or uh, Neil's retired and Alex is an astronaut or, or something along those lines. But you listen to that, and my argument was the the bottom line is the internet does things to like any media outlet or any. Uh, journalism any any area of journalism they're they're looking for headlines and looking for clicks so don't blow it out of proportion is what they say in the sports talk world that's one of the cliches that you hear all the time don't blow it out of proportion okay don't overreact i've read you know i feel like i haven't even read the actual stories because there is no story it's it's like one or two lines from alex and yeah, maybe we're maybe we've moved one step closer to, uh, it's, we've, we've we've moved one step closer to realizing okay, the big tours aren't going to happen. But is that really news? <laughs> it's news to you and I. Like I, I won't, um, you know, I won't discount that. It is new to to Rush fans. That's that means something to us. Like oh, Alex, Alex has made it clear that no, for real, these tours aren't going to happen. Maybe even any tour at all. 
That's news to us. But for it to be mainstream news, and here's how I know it's mainstream news. I see it on my Facebook feed. And the big thing, non-Rush fans text me about it. <laughs> because when when he, you know, when the jazz drummer I play with is is hearing about Rush news and texting me, hey, check this out, you know it it's been blown out of proportion. So I, I feel like most of us have learned from the first go around. There are still a few people on my Facebook who I'm like, did we not did you not learn <laughs> from last time? And you remember a couple months ago when it was in the news and then Getty eventually came out and said, listen, you guys, that that's not what he said. <laughs> you know, chill out. This happened months ago, even then months ago. So it's the same sort of thing. That's why uh, I am proud of most of you who aren't sort of reacting like the, we all did the first time. Uh, it's all, you got to read past the headlines. You know what I mean? The headlines are deceiving for sure. Still hoping for new original material and i think we'll get it today we're talking about power windows though some older stuff from 1985 um you i i will argue not i could but i will argue this is some of the best sounding music that came from these three canadian dudes speaking of canadian dudes i have a new friend of mine his name is mark anthony to join me on the show today to talk about power windows how's it going mark good how's it going uh, it's good. You are from outside of Toronto. That's really cool. I am. I'm always jealous when I bring people on the show. You know, we do the album series, and I bring people on, and I say, "Where are you from?" And they're like, "You know, Toronto or anywhere near Toronto in Canada." I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> uh, this guy's already got a leg up on me." You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's. I wouldn't say necessarily a leg up. I mean, it's just because they're hometown boys. I guess we're more privy to you know, some of the information that may not seep out to some of the outer parts of, you know, the continent, we probably get it quicker than you guys, right? So Right. I, w- I want to go to Toronto at some point, but I-, I may have told the story before. I'll see if I can say it quickly. I was doing like a spring break thing with my friend in high school. We went to Cancun, Mexico. And we're playing beach volleyball and this, uh, like, g- wedding group came over, like all these bachelors. <laughs> And they were playing volleyball with them. And uh, it was like a bachelor party is what I mean. Uh, and we said to them, where are you guys from? And we said, you know, Albany, New York. They go, we're from Toronto. I said, Toronto, you must love Rush. And the dude, without missing a beat, turned <laughs> turned around and yelled, F Rush. It was a hard moment because I just assumed everybody in Toronto loved Rush. But apparently that's not a thing. No. It's like maybe it's like saying everybody in London loves uh or you know England loves the Beatles. I'm sure that's not a thing either. I know it's not a thing. Or yes. So is Power can you speak as highly about Power Windows as I always do? Is it is it one of your top albums? Well, let's put it this way. Power Windows as of right now is definitely in my top 3. Um that wasn't always the case. Um in fact, when this record came out, I vividly remember when it came out because um, I was about 12, was I 12? That's around 85, right? Mm-hmm. So that would have been, yeah, I would have been yeah, 12 years old when this came out. And at that point, you got to understand, the year before Grace Under Pressure came out, and I have an older sister who's six years older than me, and she was really 
into Rush, like, you know, obviously long before I was, and she had all the records and stuff like that. And my first exposure to Rush was a copy of Exit Stage Left in her room. And I went and dropped the needle, stuck her headphones on when she wasn't around and listened to it, and it just totally changed everything for me when I heard that record. Mm -hmm. And from then on in, I was hooked. And the next year, at 11 years old, she took me to Maple Leaf Gardens for my very first concert, which was Rush, Grace Under Pressure, the one that they actually filmed and have the DVD release of. I was at that show. Oh, no way. Yeah, I was at that show, and that was like, like I said, that was like a few things that you can consider like life-altering experiences for some for yourself. That for me was definitely it, because that concert was unbelievable. So how after, aw- how awful were those three D glasses? Oh, they they didn't do they didn't do squats like especially <laughs> from where I was from where I was sitting, they they didn't do anything. I mean, the three D glasses were only really somewhat effective if you had floor seats because you could look at the screen like dead on if you were anywhere on the sides of the arena it didn't do anything if you just looked at each other and you looked like fools i mean you gotta i'm as old as roll the bones okay i'm not that old and in my lifetime 3d glasses have been trash until about five years ago maybe even three years ago so i can't imagine what they were like in 1985 They, they were they were terrible they were like those kind of things that you would get in like comic books, they were like, you know, just paper with this one red piece of, you know, right. plastic and a blue piece on the other side. And it was just, it was just horrendous. And it really didn't do anything. But you had to but, wear them. I mean, Otherwise you were watching, you were only seeing it in one half D, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mr. Count Floyd there reminded us about that. Right. right? Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a great concert. And I mean, after that concert was, was finished, I mean, you know, at that point I was just completely hooked. I mean, I was, asking my parents to take me out and we were find any 45 I could find or any record with Rush I could have my own copy of and I loved it so and at, in Toronto we have a really cool radio station here called Q107 I don't know if you've ever heard of it there in your neck of the woods Q107 but, uh, is near me No I I'm saying I don't know if you've ever heard of that radio station at all No they're but, they're, uh, they're the Toronto based one right yeah, they're pretty large. Like, I mean, they're also like internet based now too. So I'm not sure if you maybe have stumbled upon them in your. Yeah, I think I've heard know, them. I think I've heard of them because they do rush interviews from time to time. I think. Oh yeah, they do a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. So, but um, I I was I was on the listening to the radio back then, and I remember the one of the the DJ guys was saying that next week they were going to play and have Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee in, and they were going to do a premiere of Power Windows. So I was totally stoked for that right so i got in the data was going to be broadcast i got my headphones on i told everybody to go away and leave me alone for an hour and i listened to it <laughs> excuse me now like i said this record is an is a top three record for me now but back then i gotta to be totally honest with you when i first heard it i was extremely disappointed i when i first heard the big money come on i was like what is this like i mean i knew that you know, they were dabbling with keyboards and always had been, you know, as far back as, you know, Farewell to Kings. They had a little bit in Hemispheres. They went in more and then they got more and more. And I was kind of used to it. But at this point, it, it started really taking over their sound at that point, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, is that I was also getting into playing guitar. And this record didn't become a top three record for me until much later because when I started playing guitar... I was really, really into bands like Black Sabbath, Metallica, uh, you know, Racer X, which Paul Gilbert's early band that he was involved in. 
and a lot of like really you know either heavy guitar players or shreddy guitar players and when i listened back to power windows and even hold your fire later on and especially presto i thought god what is going on here like his sound is so wimpy on guitar like i just totally despised it i didn't like it at all I was like why what happened to his tone where is this where's the guitar tone from like 2112 and hemispheres like it's like totally all acoustic-y you know twangy and clean sounding i just didn't like it right so for a long time that record was put away and not listened to i just listened to like the first record up to like maybe you know moving pictures and that was it right and i just put those records away but later on as i became more involved in audio production and started producing my own bands material and stuff like that and got more into songwriting and stuff like that something happened where something in my brain went click and i listened back to power windows and started going hmm there's something going on here different than when I first listened to this. Now, I don't know if it's because I became more mature a musician or more mature a listener, but all of a sudden, the the songs became more intricate in my mind, more thought out, better layered. The drum sounds were, were a lot better in my ears now than they were before. I thought they sounded like garbage when I first listened to them, but now it's like, wow, now I can really hear that drum room a lot better than I did. I, I never noticed it before. But just different things stood out as I became older in listening to this record. And now, I mean, I have like four copies of it on vinyl. Like I have the 2014 reissue. I got uh, an original year Columbia House pressing that they put out. I got a, a, a British UK pressing of it. I got like so many different pressings of it because I love this record. So to say that I like it now is an understatement. It's probably one of my favorite records to pull out and listen to. Yeah, you, you said maybe you're more, a more mature musician, and maybe that's true, but what I was thinking was, I think that we all become more mature listeners. I think as consumers, we grow. And yeah, that, that that's happened to me just off the top of my head on Presto, the back half of Roll the Bones, um, most of Tess for Echo. The, those were all tracks that I and albums that I, I really didn't get. Until later, when in a lot in a lot of cases, it was because I was I have completely beat the other stuff I liked to death. You know, I didn't want to listen to leave that thing alone anymore. I just heard yeah. it too much in a small amount of time, and and all those other tracks that we all love instantly. So uh, to come back to tracks like War Paint, for example, or Hand Over Fist, and be like, oh, you know these these aren't the rock and ro- the progressive metal that I loved at first. But if I stop trying to pretend they're progressive metal, they actually sound really nice and they're they're good songs. And I actually had moments like that on Power Windows. Um, you know, we we know the ones that hit hard right out of the gate, but Middletown Dreams was a tune I didn't like at first. And I know that our buddy Bill Middletown Meyer is still in that phase. He'll he'll come to love it eventually. Emotion Detector as well was a song I was like, ugh. Like I heard the intro synth and I'm like all right, that's I can't I can't do that. So yeah, I'm with you. I think I think that happens naturally. I think it's natural for that to happen. Um, I've yeah. only I've only witnessed Mark um, two albums been to be released. I've only been a Rush fan in time to see Snakes and Arrows and Clockwork Angels. And with Snakes, I loved it. And with Clockwork, I know I'm in the minority here. I I was the same way. I listened through and was like, okay, it's it's like good, but 
I don't know. Like, I don't know if this is what I wanted. I don't know if this is what I expected. And then, honestly, with like the second listen through, I was like, all right, <laughs> it's it's really good. I like it. But I do have a, a small taste of what that's like. So, you, you mean... Know, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, the funny thing when you just mentioned that is that I kind of had the complete opposite of that. To me, I mean, I listened to... I, when Snakes and Arrows came out, I heard uh, Far Cry, and I thought, oh, this is great. I bought the record and was totally not... I was underwhelmed with that record. <laughs> and I thought Clockwork Angels was just brilliant. I just loved that record. But, you know, we're talking about Power Windows, so... yeah. You, so, <laughs> I, I want to move on, but I don't want to like make it sound like I'm discounting what you just said because I love snakes. Um, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll obviously we'll get there in a few weeks. Yeah. So the big money comes out hard. It comes out roaring, and you didn't like that at first. Is that what you meant? You like yeah, that opening was weird. It. And and I asked this mark because I've known a couple people who said, one guy specifically who said that. Grace Under Pressure is actually one of my old music teachers from school. He said Grace Under Pressure is the perfect Rush album. It's the best Rush album. Of course, I'm sure he doesn't know anything post Hold Your Fire, but yeah. he thought that was perfect. He was a big Genesis fan, actually. And he goes, I loved every bit of that album. And when Power Windows came out, I couldn't wait. And he goes, you know, it was just something about Power Windows. Like, they had that first track. What was it called? I go, The Big Money. He's like, yeah, Big Money. Big Money came out and you were like, this is awesome. And then the rest of the record was just, ugh. And I'll never forget him saying that. I'll never forget him being like, yeah, I mean, Big Money rules, but the rest of the record yeah. is just, eh. Well, you know what? I mean, I like Rift Under Pressure, but I think Power Windows has it beat no problem. Oh, yeah. Especially especially in like running order, like sequence of songs. And I mean, like, for to me now, Pat, the the big money and grand designs are one of the best one, two songs on a oh. rush record ever. <laughs> uh, very, you know? very cool to hear you say that because that's something I've always considered. And just, I'm going to let you finish Mark. <laughs> it's like a Kanye moment. Uh, that's funny that you say that because I, the, one of the biggest pairings for me is on this record and that's marathon and territories. I don't know why they're sort of related, I guess, thematically, but they just, I can't listen to one without listening to the other. They just flow really nicely, and they feel like sister songs to me, and I, there's really no reason for them to be sister songs other than the fact that I'm used to hearing them back-to-back. Um, but I've also yeah. never heard anyone comment on that. I've never heard anyone be like, yeah, these two next to each other, that's a cool thing. Oh, yeah, it, it, it just doesn't... It, I can't imagine it any other way except that way. Like, I mean, it's just such a perfect back-to-back thing, and I mean, I'm not sure if you're aware of this book that came out a few years ago by Martin Popoff called Contents Under Pressure. Yes, I am. And it's, and uh, in that book, they talk about a lot of things, and I mean, you know, they talk about the fact that they think, that Getty thinks that, that like this album is, uh, you know, one of his favorite 80s, 90s records, followed by Roll the Bones and Test for Echo. Right, uh-huh. which is which is interesting considering that just the the album before when they talked about Grace Under Pressure, he mentions Grace Under Pressure, Hemispheres, and Counterparts being three of the records that he vividly remembers being the most difficult records ever <laughs> that he had to make. <laughs> so, so it's interesting to see that Power Windows. Why I think it turned out so well is because I think they were in such a good headspace with this 
with this of making of this record. I mean, they had so much trouble with Grace Under Pressure with that with that producer Peter Henderson because in their eyes he was not really a producer. They just thought he was just a excellent engineer. And when it came to production stuff, when they needed help with it, he was completely like no good with yeah. it with them, right? So. They had such a hard time doing it, and they did that record in winter and stuff like that. So they have very bad memories of it. But you know, this record, they went to England. You know, went to you know Richard Bryson's you know studio, the Manor in England, and they went to Abbey Road to do the you know the the symphony stuff and the choir stuff. So there's a lot of you know fond memories. I can imagine being a musician myself, going to all these different studios. You know, that so many great records have been made, and you're in there doing your own stuff. And just being so overwhelmed by the history there, and you know that that shows in your music. You know what I mean? Like you, you're you're that excited about doing it. It kind of shows up into your playing. So that's why I'm not very surprised that you know Power Windows turned out as great as it did. You know, I mean. But back to the big money. When I first heard it, I just kind of was taken aback by how much the keyboards kind of really stood out. I mean, sure, this early warning, there's keyboards in it, but the big money had so much more of it right off the top of the song. And plus, like I said, the big down thing for me was the guitar. I just thought that it was very twangy and thin sounding compared to what I was used to. I mean, even the record before, Grace Under Pressure, he was still using Marshall amps and stuff like that. And you could tell, and at this point, he had switched to Galleon Kruger amps and this guitar company out of Canada called Signature Guitars, <laughs> which just sounded horribly thin. There were nothing but single coil guitars, and I just didn't like it. Yeah. But like I said, now in retrospect, the, the song is so well done. And I mean, when you listen to them playing the song now live, whether it's R30 or you know even on other tours later on, it just sounds so much more powerful with the stuff that they have now. You know, the Hughes and Kepner gear and stuff like that. It really sounds really heavy, and I mean that's. That's that's a really great version of it now, but I mean, I really like the studio version of it now too. Like I said, it was just a matter of maybe becoming more aware of the times and stuff like that, and you yeah, know, so, more mature as a listener, right? Totally. Something about it is makes it so perfectly composed and perfectly orchestrated. Orchestrated is the word that comes to mind. Like it's the closest thing to, uh, you know, a composer writing for a symphony orchestra. It's so well yeah. orchestrated, and, and every little sound is perfectly placed. And a lot of, I mean, obviously now we're into Andy Richards territory here. We gotta, we gotta throw Andy some love. Andy's the reason yeah. for the, some of those weird sounds we've never heard before. And I'll, you know, at once after I talked to him, I, we all realized, oh, he had a lot to do with where those sounds go and and what sounds to use. So a lot of that's owed to him. One of the things oh, yeah. that. Uh, kind of bummed me out about this song was when I saw the vi- the music video which was a cool idea I liked the I liked the video but to hear it trimmed down lengthwise I, d- I don't know if maybe they tr- that uh radio edit was for the radio or just for MTV or something I'm not sure how that worked but it they cut parts out and it felt so weird to me when I first heard it cuz I knew the song already yeah it, it was definitely trimmed down for for radio I mean I'm pretty sure, uh, like I'm sure the, the the Rush fans that are listening will probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that the early 45s and the uh, single versions of the Big Money that came out, it was a, it was trimmed down. I mean, it's common, it's pretty common for radio to receive a sort of you know, you know, more radio friendly edit of it. I mean, anything that's beyond four and a half minutes, they start going eh, and they get a little concerned about it, right? So. 
<laughs> so you usually have to trim it down, right? So, yeah. but I mean, it's you know, but that's as, as a vinyl collector now having that is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it, you know, sure, it does. It's not what you're used to, but you know, having a variation of a song sometimes is a cool thing to have. I mean, sometimes the single versions also come with a different, slightly different mix sometimes too, right? Or a slightly different master than the vinyl. Right. The original like album version, so you know sometimes there's a plus with having a different version. Interesting. So that's something I never consider. And you're a vinyl collector, so you're into these sort of uh, intricate nuances that happen in the final mixes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. That's something I never think about. Interesting. Oh, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm very huge into the whole vinyl thing. I mean, even down to the fact that now when I buy records. I, I pull out the vinyl and I look at the dead wax, that little dead spot after the song is done on the side. Uh-huh. And usually they have these little encrypted little notes in there, like the serial number. And then the, the, and the mastering engineer will in, inscribe his initials in it. And I've been looking for certain pressings, like the Gilbert Kong pressing of archives, for example, is very sought after <laughs> because it's supposedly the best sounding version of those first three albums that you'll ever hear. So right. I went out and got them, and, you know, it's those kind of things I like. And, I mean, for Power Windows, there's definitely that there, too, you know, like the singles and stuff like that, right? Um, do you, I wonder, like, you must own Clockwork and the newer ones on vinyl, right? Yeah. I thought it was great that they had a different album cover for Clockwork for the vinyl version. Oh, yeah. That was I really mean, cool. And that's, and that's the thing. That's the thing that's so great about this whole thing about music. You can make a album cover for a, for a CD and have the vinyl version different, you know, and, you know, there's just so many different things you can do with it. And as a collector, people love it. They eat this stuff up. They'll buy the same record four times if there's something different on each one. <laughs> um, so uh, I want to say one more thing about Big Money and it'll transition nicely into Grand Designs. Sure. Uh, a long time ago, early on in the Rushcast <laughs> dynasty, can I call it a dynasty yet? Is that a th- is that justified? Uh, no, early on in Rushcast's career, we were doing. I was doing whatever I wanted to talk about with Rush, and I wanted to rank guitar solos. Uh, I actually meant to go back and listen to that episode this week so I could talk about it, but I've forgotten. I do remember what my number one was. As I went through the guitar, I listened to the Rush albums, and I I wrote down the the, the tracks I thought had the best guitar solos. And I remember thinking, why am I doing this? I know which one's going to end up being first. I know which one's going to win. It's going to be Marathon. Marathon's going to be my favorite guitar solo. And I got down to it, and I realized I can't, I can't not make Big Money my favorite guitar solo of every album. I think that guitar solo is so, per- again, perfectly orchestrated, perfectly composed. It's a composition in and of, in and of it itself. Uh, and I think it's perfectly executed as well. But you don't like the tone. Maybe you don't feel that way. Well, um, I really like it. I, I I really do. I mean, the fact that, you know, it took me forever to figure it out. And I was always scratching my head going, why the hell am I not getting this guitar? So I prided myself on being able to lift stuff off the records with no problem. And I'm like, why is this not computing? Because I was realizing they were doing a lot of open harmonics. And then it kind of clued into me for a second. Wait a minute, he's not in standard tuning on this song. And if you look at it, and I read, remember reading it in Guitar Magazine later that confirmed it for me, he's tuned up to F sharp on what? that song. On Big yeah. Money? Yeah. 
yeah, he said that his his guitar is tuned up to F sharp on that on that song, and I was like, well, that's why whenever I was doing those open twelfth fret harmonics, they weren't they weren't working. I was like, what the hell's going on here? Right? So wow. yeah, you know, he, yeah, I remember reading it in an article. If I find it, dude, I'll 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 send it to you. And it said right in there that he uh, he tuned up, and I always wondered why on the concerts he always had a different guitar. And right after they played that song, he would ditch that guitar and go back to a different guitar. And mm-hmm. I was like, why is he doing that? Because he had that guitar tuned up to F sharp. Oh man, I'm gonna do some research on that and yeah. see if I can look into uh, see if I can find out something about it. That's really funny. I never yeah. I'd never heard of that. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's. That's why I read it right from his own lips. But the funny thing is, I really love that it's structured really well. And just really quickly, so I can get my little two cents in. My favorite guitar solo of all time is the Camera Eye. Um, but then, you know, let's get back to Rush or the, the Power Windows. But uh, um, the Big Money is really good. I mean, easily top five guitar solo. I mean, like you said, it's structured well. It it has it's well thought out. It, every little part of it is memorable, and I mean, that in itself is probably one of the most important things in the guitar solo, I would say, is that if you can remember it, if you can hum it and kind of sing it out, then it's a good guitar solo. So what what I love about the sound, <laughs> this is not the only thing I love, uh, it's so funny that for me as a listener, I consider this album to have, of let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight tracks... I think one, two, three, four, five of them have maybe top fifteen, top twelve best guitar solos. Amazing guitar solo. That is a lot for me to consider top tier guitar solos on one album. It's more than half, and that is uh, another one included. Grand Designs. While it kind of yeah. starts out as a just an eh, uh, you know, you're, sure that's cool guitar solo. Once the words come back in. You really, if you listen, yeah. Alex is going bonkers underneath it, and that's our. Though, that oh, yeah. was, I remember that moment, hearing this like that final pinch harmonic. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That always that always felt good to me. You know, and and that that song, in itself, is, is one song that I I always catch myself kind of like foot tapping and kind of really getting into when I have headphones on, and especially that ending of that song with the whole bass and drum, you know, those hits at the end that they do. Yeah, yeah. I always find myself air drumming to that all the time. It's so so well thought out, that ending. It's so great, you know. Uh, that that in itself is like one of my favorite parts of the song is that whole drum bass thing at the end. I just thought it was brilliant. And, you know, the fact that Alex can show restraint and just kind of just hitting those big open chords, letting the sequence play over top, and that those two do such kind of little elaborate little hit jabs in between it is just brilliant. Yeah, and and I like what you said about Alex having the restraint. Playing literally the perfect part that is necessary at that moment to let the other two guys do their thing, to let the synth play its thing, and he knew exactly where his instrument fit. One of the coolest things I always thought from a, you know, sort of a geeky side of things is that Alex is playing this one chord. I think it's a big D chord that he's playing at the end yeah. of the tune. As it starts to fade out, the track, he hits, whether he meant to or not, uh, some variation of a harmonic on the E string, which made it, uh, instead of just a D major chord, it made it D major 9, 
we're getting into like yeah. jazz chords now, but it's uh, one of the silkiest, uh, like most goosebump worthy moments for me is when suddenly it's a nine chord instead of a normal major chord. And I wonder if Alex meant to do it. Uh, I could probably never pinpoint, I could maybe give you the number, the minutes and seconds at where it happens. But if any of you know what a nine chord sounds like, you might be able to pick it out. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about, but I mean, it, it, it's one of those moments though. I, I kind of get the feeling that it kind of just happened and they probably listened back to it and said, Hey, that's really cool. Let's keep it. It totally does. Yeah. It sounds, yeah. And if, if you've dabbled on guitar that has distortion on it, you know that those sort of things sometimes just happen and they just coincidentally sound really good, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like high gain feedback is it always it always almost always feeds back on a pitch that is uh, gonna help you out. Yeah, exactly. So Manhattan Project. Now we're getting a little bit more, uh, yeah, a little more serious. Honestly, uh, yeah. It's a I bit... mean, it's the... go ahead. I was gonna say that the the whole the whole vibe of the album kind of takes a little bit of a serious tone i mean the big money and grand designs are so upbeat and so like yeah you know like you're right into it when it comes on you know where this you know even with the whole kind of like that whole somber kind of like you know like distant wind sound there like the nuclear wind in the background there it almost sounds like you know like oh what's coming up now you know like you're almost expecting something not negative, but something a little bit more serious coming down the pipe there when they start, right? Right. Especially with that whole kind of, like, you know, marching snare thing at the top there. Right. right? And then, like, I mean, it, but it's it's such a great song, and where where else would you learn a little bit of, you know, history, but in a Rush song, you know? Yeah, right. Like, it's a very pro- very appropriate for this, for this band. Um. It, I said before clockwork, this would be a great opportunity, guys, to pull out Manhattan Project. You've got the string section with you. A really cool moment in the middle of the song where we essentially feature this, uh, you know, Rush has used strings in the past. Well, in the past, as of today, maybe, I don't know, maybe this is the first instance of them having a string section on a, a studio recording. I haven't really hadn't really thought of that. I imagine it is. I don't think there are any strings on permanent waves or anything. Um, no, it, the only stringed instrument they had prior to that was just the violin and losing it. Right. So kind of cool that I just realized that just now. I mean, kind of cool that they featured it. Uh, and it is a nice moment, you know, almost like where the guitar solo would sit. They're like, nope, we're, and they've done this before. Like, let's just sit back and kind of groove instead of having a featured soloist. And we do get a yeah. little bit of a guitar solo at the very, very end. Da-na-na, da-na-na. It's like three notes and that's it. You know, it's a yeah. very tasteful track. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I mean, it's it's really like when I first got into this record, Manhattan Project was one of the songs that I got tired of first listening to this record. Uh-huh. It, to me, just mainly because I found it so much more somber like compared to the rest of it, like I said, the first two songs are so uh, more upbeat and, you know, like they to me kind of, even though I didn't really like the record at first, they were more catchier, being sure. more upbeat. And, and when when this got into this territory where it was like a little bit more laid back and, 
you know, even marathon. I mean, that's a little bit more laid back too. Where so that it's but that was kind of done, I think, on purpose, like in terms of like structuring the songs in the record. You know, you want to start on a high point, maybe bring it down a little bit, and then kind of gradually bring it back up. Oh, again, sure, it's like right? a it's like a set list. You know, you're not going to yeah. open with Manhattan Project. No, exactly. You're not going right. to open with the pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's, it's such a great song, though. I mean, you know, though, again, we're talking about, you know, layers and structure and stuff like that. And it's just such a great example of using strings. And like you said, you know, you don't need a guitar solo necessarily when you have such a great passage in the song. It doesn't even need a guitar solo. Yeah. And I think. The word I like to use is digestible. I think those first two tracks are more digestible than Manhattan Project. You, you break them down more easily, you know? Like, oh, I see what this yeah. is. There's a synth thing. In Grand Designs. Yeah. And then the guitarist play and the bass plays. He sings. Like It's a predictable form. I get it. But Manhattan Project, like we were saying earlier, maybe you'd have to be a little bit more mature as a listener to fully appreciate Um then we move to what I called for a brief amount of time my favorite Rush song ever, Marathon. And if I've learned one thing from doing Rushcast, it's that a lot of you uh, share that with me. You share the love on Marathon. I think this, I mean, maybe we could just say this whole album is perfectly orchestrated and constructed. But this song, I don't have a single thing I could say is a flaw in this song. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. Like I said, the, the, the 2016 mark is going to agree 100% with you about that. Oh, I the, like that. Okay. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 ni- the 1985 mark would have said that you're nuts because he would have said to you probably like, what are you talking about? Like, all Alex is doing is just hitting open chords and just sitting there. You know what I mean? Like, that would have been his criticism back then, right? Because being the guitar player when I was that young and you know I was so into like stuff like like I said before like you know like Pony Iomi and Sabbath and a lot of like where stuff where a guitar is really much more busy so when I heard stuff like that I was like oh he isn't doing much in this song you know but then years later you think about it and going you think to yourself well you don't need to do maybe that much in a part like that it would probably ruin it if you did a ton more over that kind of a section you know so it took that kind of you know, that's kind of a growing up to, sure. to understand that, you know? Oh, I mean, we talk about it all the time, Alex's ability to stay the hell out of the way. But, you know, I think Alex's part kind of roars a bit. It's loud, it's in your face, but you're right, it's not there as much as you'd want it to be, maybe at, at first. Uh, but then we get to the bridge, and of course the solo is amazing. The solo, I I will not argue, you know, I'm not even going to have the argument if you want to tell me it's not a great guitar solo. It's fantastic. But before the oh, guitar great. solo, we have this section in a really fast seven. Just with the bass and drums. And everything falls out. There aren't many synths playing at the time. There's no guitar. That's where Alex is greatest. Alex, you know, it's like uh, we teach about it we teach it in jazz music or any improv improvised music about how you want to improvise. You want to play all these notes, but it doesn't mean anything unless you have spots where you don't play. It's like talking. If I didn't have yeah. pauses and spots after each sentence, 
it would just sound like a huge run-on sentence, right? There, the silence is very important. And for Alex to to not play and let Neil and and, uh, and Getty jam a bit, I mean, he's doing that thing where he plays one note at a time and lets it ring out and then sort of yeah. joins in. But essentially, there's nothing happening. And that's what I yeah, think exactly. is most valued. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, another thing, too, from a guitar player's perspective, too, that at this point, Alex is really, really, really neck deep in his outboard processing gear. Like he had like a like double refrigerator rack full of gear when he was on tour at this point, all kinds of reverbs and delay units and stuff like that. So for him to sometimes hit one note, it sounded so huge, mm. you know, live, especially like it was so, you know, like gigantic when he even did like that three note sequence. Well, I remember it vividly when I went to Maple Leaf Gardens to see them on the whole your uh, power windows tour. It was just like, it just sang through the whole building when he hit those notes. It was like, wow. Like, you know, and it didn't need a, much more than that for it to be impactful. Right. We get you know, something, so, I mean, we get something in Marathon called a uh, modulation. And if you don't know what a modulation is, it's you're playing music and it's in a key. And in this case, at yeah. the end, after the solo in Marathon, we're, we're listening to the chorus, the hook. From first to last, yeah. the peak has never passed, right? Yeah. Then up. they move it up a step, okay? And it plays the same thing in a different key, a higher key. That's a pop thing. That that happens in pop music. But my favorite thing about music in general is when we take elements from the pop world and we extract them and, and put them into our, quote-unquote, more advanced or, or more prestigious or, or whatever. You know, in my world right now, it's jazz. Jazz musicians think their music is the best and pop music is awful. But when we take elements from pop music and insert it into jazz, you get fantastic music. And it's the same way with rock. It's the same way with metal. And that's what Rush is doing. We're seeing more and more of it in 1985. So, you know, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, go ahead. No, I was going to use it. I was going to say territories takes that and even jams on the gas a bit harder. We get a few more of those modulations and territories. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the funny thing is you were mentioning the whole pop thing, about how they inserted it in there. And and we were talking about earlier how about, you know, people are, have this argument about whether Rush is a progressive rock band or not or a progressive metal band. And you know what? I'm going to just come out and say this once and for all before I start about territories. Rush, to this day, is still a progressive band, and I'll tell you why. Because the true meaning of progressive is that you're changing to progress, right? To move forward, right? And Rush is constantly doing that. There's not two records where they're constantly the same. This is not ACDC where they're writing the same record for the last 20 years, right? And they're always changing. They're always moving forward. And that's the true nature of being progressive. I mean, if they wrote the same record for the last 10 years, you couldn't call them a progressive band. No matter how much twiddling and twiddling they would be doing, it's just the same thing over and over again. For me, a real progressive band is one that changes up its music and changes its, you know, outlook on its music as it, as it grows, you know? Mark, do you know about Periphery and their guitarist, Misha Mansoor? Yeah. You do know of them? Yeah, because they're uh, I talk about them a lot in the show. I'm sure everybody's annoyed at me, but um, you just you just said essentially the exact same thing that Misha said about Periphery in an interview I just heard, where he said, you know, I'm me personally. I'm like someone who hates 
genres and labels for music. And Misha kind of echoed that when he said, uh, someone asked, you know, what is periphery? What genre do you prefer? And he's like, you know, there's all these different genres we've been labeled, but I think progressive is still the best one, even though that's sort of like an old thing now. Progressive is like an old genre that no one wants to be labeled as. Progressive is our favorite, like you said, because it means we're doing new things. We're progressing and making new music. It has nothing to do with what time signature we're in or how yeah. long our songs are. It, ha- it means exactly. we're moving forward. I'm so happy to hear you say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that people get too fixated on that part. Like, people will say bands like Dream Theater are like the ultimate progressive band because they do all these great technical things and have 20-minute songs. Well, they are a great band, and I do love them, but that, to me, is not progressive. To me, Dream Theater has sort of stopped being a bit progressive because, to me, I almost know what I'm going to expect with the next Dream Theater record. Totally. You know, I know, I know what's going to come next. But with a Rush record... I never had that. I was like, what's going to happen now? You know, because they did this on these records. They did this on this record. You know, they added keyboards and hemispheres. Then they went more, you know, synthy on this record. Then they went back to kind of the roots on Presto. Then they went a little bit more poppier, you know, commercial pop on Roll the Bones. Then they went heavy on Counterpart. You know what I mean? You didn't know what was happening. And that was so exciting. That's progressive. Uh, I didn't want to talk about this, but now I have to because we're talking about it. Um, I watched an interview today. I've been I've been dying for periphery anybody in the periphery to acknowledge that they had Rush influences. They'll talk about how Dream Theater and Tool influenced them all day, but they won't. They've never mentioned Rush. And today they were the drummer was uh, answering questions from fans on like a live stream, and somebody asked him straight up, "Who are your influences? Who do you listen to?" And he said the first band he said was Rush. I was so, so happy. Two minutes later, someone said, what drummers do you like to listen to to learn from? And, and you know, whose music do you listen to? What drummers? And the first drummer he said was Neil Peart. Uh, that was a big sigh of relief and a big moment for me, for sure. <laughs> Great. Well, Our, I mean... Who, who, who isn't influenced by him? I mean, he's such a great, fantastic drummer, you know? Yeah. So Marathon is well, the, a track that I... Obviously, so in terms of best solos on this record, Big Money, Grand Designs, Marathon, I think, are uh, top solos for me. Uh, Territories, for whatever reason, might be a... You were talking about hate to great. This one might have done the opposite. It definitely didn't get to hate. But it was the track that I loved so much at the beginning, and for some reason, it, it just felt good to me. I remember you know, lines like, better people, better food, better beer, even as a teenager, was like, Oh, that means something. Like, there's something very heavy in that sentiment, you know. Uh, th- I mean, yeah. everything lyrically in this track. We keep looking through the eyeglass in reverse. These are uh, deep. <laughs> These have deep meanings. Uh, the funky bass part at the end, as a growing bass player, was inspiring. Um, the modulations, the use of synthesizers coupled with the guitar, are all very nicely displayed on territories. I agree, a hundred percent. I mean, th- that to me is one of the those songs that I really liked because when I first heard it, it was one of those songs where when I closed my eyes and listened to it, I could literally like have a vision in my head of like a scenery when I heard it, like that whole beginning with that whole kind of Oriental kind of you know vibe that a cake got off when you, when you hear like that whole dee, 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 
Like it just sure. sounded so, so, so like Oriental sounding to me. It was like, I could almost literally envision Japan and stuff like that when I was listening to it. And it, it just really, it, it was really strong. Like that's, those kind of songs to me always come across and impactfully when you can, when you can evoke something in your mind, when you listen to the music, it, it's, it's, it's one of those songs that are really mean, meaningful to me because of that. I, I really like that song. I mean, and his whole kind of guitar playing, he just takes a regular kind of guitar sound, like very clean, but almost made it sound kind of like very like Japanese guitar playing type style at the very top there. Yeah. And it was, it was really, really cool. I mean, that's that again, there again, that's where we talked quickly there about the whole progressive thing. Not a lot of people were doing that kind of stuff, you know, in their music, like, you know, and, and because they did that, that's moving forward, you know, in my eyes, you know, they were doing that kind of stuff. I mean, even Neil doing that whole kind of, you know, like kind of like that whole kind of bongo kind of high tom roll thing at the top there at the song, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's playing on the high high toms there. I mean, that's really added to it. I mean, it, it's such a great song. I mean, it's one of those songs where I think this is what I was trying to get at is that the music and the words are so married in this song perfectly that you couldn't imagine any other kind of lyrics and any kind of other music with those lyrics right yeah that's a good point i like the sort of role reversal we get with alex um i mean obviously that's happening a lot on this album and in this era but uh we get sort of this ostinato figure of him going boom 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 bum bum boom you know what part i'm talking about oh yeah yeah. i sing it poorly um that's normally what a synth a synth would be doing you know, in any other band or maybe earlier Rush, and the guitar would fill out the the wider spectrum of sound. And Alex is just able to play only that one little phrase over and over until we get to the chorus where he has these big honking guitar chords. Uh, again, yeah. it speaks to his discipline. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's such a great line. I mean, I remember when I was sitting down and trying to learn some of these songs, it's such a simple guitar line, but it's so cool. I mean, especially if you if you set up the right guitar tone with it, you know, a little bit of chorus, a little bit of that, that kind of echoey delay on it, and start playing that. It sounds so cool. It's you, you can definitely tell it was maybe originally a, a thought for a sequence for a keyboard, but the fact that he put that onto guitar is brilliant. You know, I mean, I I love that part. I mean, it's so good. I mean, like, and then again. It doesn't need to be, you know, a hundred thousand sixteenth notes for it to be cool. It it can be something that simple, and it can be very progressive too at the same time. And that's why I really love about this era of Rush. It's that they kept that progressive route, but made it more, you know, maybe commercially more acceptable. But again, but then again, you know, not many songs at six minutes would be considered commercial, right? So. There you go. Uh, let's take this theme that we have going of, of easily digestible music versus you know less digestible music, or being a more mature. Uh, what do we say, consumer or listen? A more cons- a more mature listener. I've yeah. often said that the 
you know, Rush kind of leaves a stronger track for the end. Obviously, they open up with their biggest track for the, for the most part. They like to end with some stronger stuff at the very yeah. last slot. But the one or two spaces just before the last song have always felt similar to me on every single album, okay? And I've, I've incorrectly labeled it as the weakest stuff on the album. I have a better label for it here. Think about this. This is the slot where Tyshawn exists. This is where um, the Good News First, or Good News First, and Bravest Face exist. Wish Them Well. Are you going to tell me Wish Them Well is the strongest song on Clockwork Angels? Uh, what else? Um, Red Lenses, which I think is the most different song on Grace Under Pressure, exists in this slot. Uh, yeah. I think you can make an argument. Witch Hunt is the most different thing on uh, on moving pictures. So I stand by the statement that just before the last track, and here we here we are in Power Windows, and while these two tracks are two of the strongest songs in the catalog, I think, um, I'm now realizing maybe we could label them as the the two slots or the slot where we put the music that's hardest to digest or. The, the songs you have to be the most mature as a listener to really understand. I don't you know, know what? you know, I don't know if we're listening I, to a motion detector and going, boom, right off the bat, that's the best track on the album. You know what, though? I can tell you exactly what it is, because in that, in that slot, you also have Losing It. In that slot, you also have, um, Jesus, what's that song on power? Um, Permanent Waves. Jesus. Um, uh, After Jake- new. Uh, Jacob's Ladder. Oh, different strings. Different strings. Thank you. And also, hand, o- hand over fist is a great example. Yeah, but you know what they are? Those are the studio tracks. Yes. The motion detector. They're the ones that are written, knowing full well that they're going to be approached <laughs> mainly as a song that's going to be in the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very, very interesting. That's such a good observation you're totally right you nailed it because those are the tracks that while maybe they you know maybe they think initially we're not going to play these live and maybe they did down the road a bit i think at first they thought yeah we're just here's here's where we put the tracks that are made in the studio you're right you totally nailed it yeah because i mean if you think about it every time i've read anything about rush they've always said that they've always had a track like that in mind whether it was tears on 2112 whether it was Madrigal on Farewell to Kings, right? I mean, there was always that one song there that they kind of thought, okay, we're not going to probably be doing this one live. I mean, a motion detector in that book I mentioned earlier, I don't know if that's, I can't remember how kind of that's changed or not, but they've said that they've never played a motion detector live. No, they haven't. So, By the way, yeah, Contents so, Under Pressure is one of my favorite Rush books. I've read it three times. If you don't know yeah, Contents so, Under Pressure, go check it out. Yeah, it's a great book, honestly. And uh, and Mark, you know why? You know why I think I probably st- realized that that something special was, something was different about that slot is because the only two albums I've se- seen uh, that I've been around for the release. I gotta slow down here. I'm getting too excited. The only two <laughs> albums I've been around for the release for were Snakes and Clockwork, and on both of them, I remember Getty specifying one song that they had a really hard time getting right. Well, obviously, we know what it was on Clockwork. We know it was Wish Them Well. They they went yeah. through dozens of versions of it or whatever they said. You know, we just couldn't get it right, and that's where they put it. 
And what if you remember, it was good news first on snakes as well. They said that one just took a long time for us to really dial in what it needed. Um, yeah. Maybe that had something to do with it. Yeah, but, you well, know, uh, that, I'm just so happy well, you said that because it so perfectly labels, because that label doesn't really fit Power Windows. Like, Middletown Dreams and Emotion Detector are not the weirdest. They're not the, yeah, maybe they're the hardest tied to digest, but you're right. They're the tracks that really don't fit live so great. Yeah, I mean, and it, and it's like like they said it. It was more a mindset too, where they can they can go in and say, "Listen, we're gonna go write these songs, but let's put in a song that we don't need to necessarily worry about." Because I mean, when you write a song, and I mean, I'm sure you being a songwriter as well, think you know sometimes when you write a song, you have to think about, okay, what am I doing here? Am I gonna be able to do this live? Especially like if somebody like Getty who has to play bass and sing and play keyboards too. Like, if you overdo a song too much, it starts to become a concern. Like, how am I going to pull this off live? You know, and especially for a band like Rush that prides themselves on not having to use, you know, hidden musician side stage to, you know, you know supplement the sound or, you know, a, a keyboard player under the stage doing extra keyboard stuff. You know, like, they're doing everything themselves, right? So the, the less of that worry that they have, the better it is for them live. So... They can always kind of sit there and say, okay, well, you know, we don't have to have this concern with this song. This is the song where we can do whatever the heck we want and make it the way we want because we're going to approach it as our studio track. I've always kind of believed that that was the way it was with those songs, and they confirmed it a lot of times in a lot of the text that I've read. Middletown Dreams, I think, has... Uh, by the way, Middletown and Emotion Detector are the last two that I think have perfect solos. Middletown, because of its emotion... Uh, ironically, yeah. <laughs> not on a motion detector, <laughs> but the emotion that is uh, conveyed through his guitar solo, it's not the flashiest, it's not the most technical, uh, it's just very well said, it's spoken well. And the, the song as a whole tells such a great story and, and tells a story really well, kind of in a Red Barchetta sort of way. It kind of takes yeah. you there. Exactly. You know, and, I, and I've said this once before, on a, on a couple of uh, different websites or uh, group pages about songwriting, and that I've always firmly believed that... Now, you can correct me if you don't agree with this, Jay, but I've always thought that Power Windows and Hold Your Fire were the two albums that Neil Peart was at his lyrical peak writing. Yeah, I, total, I totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I other I, albums came very, very close, but I would, I would agree yeah. with that. Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, those ones are, are just so well written and so well structured. They, 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 they have such a vivid story to them, and like you can, it's they're easy to follow. It's not some weird, you know, like you know, Lord of the Rings type of story. It isn't some sort of, you know thing where you have to really go back and read it seven times to figure out what the heck they're trying to talk about. It's it's well written, it's strongly written, but it's something that everyone can read and understand and not have to scratch their head about, you know. I think it's really well written. And I mean another thing that I found interesting about it was that I read somewhere in, in an article, I think it was a newspaper article saying that Neil's lyrics became so well respected that they were used in some English courses in universities. <laughs> yeah, you know? I totally believe that. 
so there you go. I mean, if you if you need any more evidence of strong lyric writing, it's got to be that. I mean, universities don't exactly use a lot of, you know, rock songs or progressive mm-hmm. songs as, you know, examples of it. I mean, you're not going to, you know, go to a university and hear somebody quote back in black for great <laughs> lyric writing, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, such good stuff. And, and also the theme on power. I'm going to get to this in a, at the end here regarding the theme of power but uh definitely much more direct if there were any themes on grace under pressure or you know signals were much more direct on power windows a motion detector is like i said a song that i couldn't get past how kind of cheesy the opening was but it really uh, there have been a couple songs in the catalog like this the big wheel was another one I hate. I just didn't like the sound of the first five seconds, you know. And it, yeah. even if, even though I'd heard it a few times all the way through, I would always just skip it. Um, but man, if you can get if you can power through those first five seconds, you are in for a treat. A motion detector mm-hmm. is, and I'm so glad Alex acknowledged this in writing before. Uh, he mentioned how it was one of his favorite guitar solos that he's recorded. I would agree with that. It's one of his longest too. Um, I think yeah. this song is nothing without his guitar work in the verses. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like I said before, I mean, the Motion Detector was in fact my least favorite song when I first heard this record. Sure, but 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 as I've as I've went through it and through the years, it's become one that's probably you know pretty high up there. I wouldn't still consider it my favorite, but it's definitely. A very, very, very strong song. I mean, I've always said before to some of my musician friends, even the even the weakest Rush song is sometimes a lot better than a lot of other bands' best song. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, and that's that's one of the things I think we're sort of you know blessed with as Rush fans that we have so much great material to listen to. We're almost spoiled, you know. I mean, you listen to some other music on the radio and you go, "This is you know, ugh. like you're so used to listening to." <clears throat> stuff of quality like Rush, it's sometimes difficult to listen to other music because you have such a high standard that you're being used to, you know? I love kind of an isolated moment in a motion detector that I love is um, the second verse, no guitar at all, just bass kind of thumping along and with, with the drums. And he says, it's true that love can change us. Never quite enough. Right? And right on mm-hmm. Never, the guitar comes back in with this fat, mean, angry, uh, you know, obnoxiously uh, powerful sound, right as the lyrical um, sensibilities kind of change. You know, like, it's true that love can change us, but never quite enough. That, that changes so fast in that line, the emotion, yeah. right? So for Alex to come in right there. And then right out of the chord, go back into this beautiful arpeggio he was doing in the first verse. I think it's good orchestration, is what we're going to call it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's put it this way. I think when we were talking about like Andy Richards and the credit that he deserves on the record, I think Peter Collins deserves quite a bit of uh, like compliments for his work because he was also a very strong songwriting producer as well. Sure. And th- those kind of little nuances that we just spoke of just now, I guarantee you he had a bit of input on, you know, <laughs> like, you know, to put that kind of a chord on that lyric 
section, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's that's just good production work. You know, that's just great songwriting. That's, that's it's just great, period, overall. You know, I mean, a lot of bands, even new bands, like a lot of times when I work with bands before, like that have that helped with, with, you know, making records, I've always, you know, tried to point that out, that, you know, try to marry your words with the music, like try to give the word more impact with, with, a, with maybe a different chord or a different line with it, you know, to give it, give that word more imagery with your music, you know, and I think that's exactly what they're trying to do in that section. I don't know why, maybe it's, uh, maybe I could say that a song can be so weird that it breaks through that threshold of I can't listen to this right now. I think Mystic Rhythms would would fall right into that. I think Mystic Rhythms. I'm I'm looking at it going, why did I love that song so much? I can't. I'll never forget when R30 came out and I ripped it out of the packaging on Christmas Eve night on the way home from my grandma's, and I put it in the CD player in the car. I was like, Mom, I just have to hear this one track. I want to hear this song live so bad. And I can't imagine what my mom thought as she listened to a live recording of Mystic Rhythms. Um, but I was so amped to hear it live that the band acknowledged that they liked that song too. But it's a weird track, man. And it, the video proves it. The video is so, you know, weirdly oh, yeah. funny. But um, something about that opening drum part is really, really enticing. You know... I really, really, really love this song. And if there's ever been a time where, you know, Rush in their very, very early days, you could always put a finger on what their influences were in the early days. And as they grew and became such a huge band, that was like never evident in their songs later as much as I found. Like not nearly as much. Yeah, I sure they had a little bit of the police influence here and there and that. But they became Rush, you know, like when they made Rush songs, you knew it was Rush, right? Mm -hmm. But this song is one of the only times in the whole era that I kind of said, hey, this reminds me of Peter Gabriel. It really did. That that whole drum thing at the beginning, that is very Peter Gabriel 3 and Gabriel 2 record, where there's a lot of that kind of African motif stuff going on in there, and I mean, you know, they are huge Genesis fans. Rush, and I know Neil Peart has specifically even mentioned that he was that he loved the Peter Gabriel solo material too. So I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised that that might have trickled in that whole African vibe into it. But that's not a bad thing. Like, don't right. get me wrong. I mean, I think that's such a great thing, and it had, and again. You close your eyes and listen to that song. You're you're literally transported into Central Africa. You know, like it's so it's so good. I mean, and what a great great song on acoustic guitar that is. You know, yeah. Like, I mean, what that's a what cool the, tone, a really nice tone that he gets on that that track. Yeah, that's one of the one of the rare times I remember seeing Alex Lifeson on stage with just an acoustic guitar, and I was like, mm-hmm. wow, this is like. This is phenomenal. Like, I mean, you know, usually he has one on a stand and, you know, he's just playing along and then he'll jump onto electric. But this is one of the songs where I remember him playing pretty much straight through the whole song on acoustic. And it was like, this is great, you know, like, and it fits so good. I mean, the all the keyboard layering and stuff that was going on in that fits so well. 
And I mean, even the most simplest bass lines is one of the ones I remember. And I can remember at the drop of a hat all the time. Like, it's such a great bass line, and it's not overly complicated, you know? Yeah, and a nice little bass solo in, on the beginning of this track. Once yeah. the bass enters. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Man, I started getting lost in what you were saying. <laughs> uh, Mystic Rhythms. What, uh, here's my favorite moment on the record. Is We know it's about power. We can see yeah. the big money, grand designs, atom bombs, <laughs> right? These are powerful things. And... And at the end, we're kind of wondering, well, what's the Windows part? Is it just for the joke on the on the you know the album art? And in the <laughs> second verse, it got, everything boils down. It gets real serious in the second verse, and he says, "We sometimes catch a window, a glimpse from what's beyond for what's beyond, or whatever I, the exact wording yeah. is, a glimpse of what's beyond." Right? That is yeah. is such that's a goosebump moment for me. That's oh, <laughs> I understand now. Power windows. We're getting a glimpse of what's beyond regarding power. Yeah. You know, that is, the, and it's the end of the track. It has to do with why I'm so obsessed with what tracks are placed where. Let's put this track at the end of the album and in the, not even in the first verse, in the second verse, and explain to everybody what this whole album was about lyrically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there again lies the thing we were talking about earlier about how song or running orders are so like so important. And I mean, especially back then, especially in the vinyl era, you know, you have to think about two sides, you know? You have to think about the opening of side A and the opening of side B, hence why they put territories on first there, because they needed another, you know, something to catch the listener at the top again. Uh-huh. But you want to end, you want to end your record with something... And I've always thought about this with Rush. I've always kind of found their last songs to be sort of a hint. Like, this is what could be coming next kind of thing at at the at the end. It's almost like they're foreshadowing what you could maybe expect on the next record. It always kind of seemed that way. I mean, like, Vital Signs is such a different song to what was on the rest of the record. You know, it's almost like, you know, are they hinting that the next thing after this is going to be more sequency, and then, lo and behold, you had signals. Then the signals, you had countdown, which was a bit more back with the guitar at the end there. At, you know when they were playing the guitar bit, and then you get into you get into a uh, grace under pressure, which again had way more guitar in it than it, the signals did. So you know, I mean, I always found that those last songs were almost like they were trying they, to give you a little. Yeah, they glimpse. foreshadow. They foreshadow. The, I yeah. mean, do you do you think Mystic Rhythms does that? I, I think so. I think that they were trying to hint that the next record might have even more kind of tones. Maybe they might have broadened their their sampling a bit more, yeah. you know, percussion-wise, you know. like I mean, because it's definitely there. I mean, if there's any song where Neil kind of branches out percussion-wise, it's on that song. <laughs> right. And I, I consider High Water and Mystic Rhythms to be sister songs in that respect. With, to the yeah, drumming. Oh, you know? I, I love High Water. Um, yeah, what a great record. It was fun listening to it this week and getting to dive in again. Um, uh, I just want to make one quick point, though, before we start wrapping up. Yeah. Is that the tour, okay? 
I I've been to every Rush tour since 1984. Okay, um, and Power Windows, I think, was a very interesting time, and I'm curious to hear reaction from Rush fans who listen to this from that time period in different parts of the country because um, I found that it was very strange as a Rush fan going to concerts. I mean, that was because the year before, Grace Under Pressure was packed. Like it was, you couldn't put another person into Maple Leaf Gardens with a shoehorn. It was that filled. Okay. And for Power Windows, I remember when we went to got tickets, like the in the Maple Leaf Gardens, they had different sections, the gold, se- gold seating, red, green, and gray. Right. So the gray was the worst seating. Green was like better. And then red was a lot better. And gold was really good. So for, for Grace, for Grace Under Pressure, we got greens, which we were lucky. But for whole, for power windows, I remember all of a sudden we got right at the top of the gold, which is really good. I was like, hmm, how can we got those seats? And I looked around at the show and it wasn't as packed as the, the, the concert before. And then I noticed the same thing for Hold Your Fire, that there was even a little bit less people at Hold Your Fire. But then when they did Presto, it was re-rammed again. So I'm huh. trying to wonder if maybe the, the fan base might have gotten a little little confused at that point with those records. You know, what do I'm you think? Su- yeah, I'm sure they did. I don't think it's justified. I don't, I don't see Presto as this grand uh, revisiting of the old style. I don't see it like that at all. So I'm I'm confused as as to why people, you know, I see I see Presto as just I see Presto as hold your fire. Obviously sonically it's different. It's thinner and lighter and all that. Um they took all the synthesizers from Hold Your Fire and they made them different synthesizers. <laughs> they just I think yeah. the synthesizers sound different, but I think their role was not diminished in the least. I don't see it as a grand return to rock. It's not. I think Counterparts was more of a return to the roots than Presto. I think it was just a reorganizing of the sounds. Um, I would still argue Hold Your Fire is a more a guitarist's album before Presto. You know, I like. There are some moments on Hold Your Fire that are amazing on guitar, and certainly more heavy than anything on Presto. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll agree with you there 100%, because to be honest with you, Presto is my least favorite Rush album. I really don't like that record at all. <laughs> I mean, besides besides Show, Don't Tell in the past, I really don't think there's anything that great on that record. Uh-huh. Okay, so you know? I, I, I am literally the same way, you know, like pre-2008. <laughs> I was the same way. I, every record but Presto, I'll take Show, Don't Tell, I'll take The Pass, I'll, like I think maybe War Paint I was into, but everything else, eh, eh, I don't need it. But now, and it, it took me forever to be a more mature listener. Like I'm not, I'm not gonna sit here and be like you're not, Im- you're immature or anything like that. But like, you know, our ears change. I think you'll come around on Presto. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I gave myself what I what I do every once in a while is I give myself a chance to to re give that record a chance. What I did is I went out and I bought the. 200 gram vinyl of it, listened to it, yeah, you know, and it grew a little bit more on me. But I went out and bought the SACD, like that super audio CD version of Presto, right? Mm-hmm. And I put it and I put it in my car. And those CDs are usually mastered a bit better than the normal ones. And I just left it in my car, and it's it definitely has 
grown on me, but it's still my least favorite record of the catalog. I mean, sure. I think it's just mainly because, again, I think what it was is this is exactly what it is. They were hyping Presto so much here in Toronto on the radio station, like, this uh, is a return to form. This is going to be the heaviest thing since, power, since moving pictures. That was what they were always saying on the radio. That Presto is going to be a return to form like moving pictures. They were saying that for weeks and weeks and weeks. Then Show Don't Tell comes on, and I'm like, uh, it's better, but it's not nearly as <laughs> heavy as I thought they were going to make it. I mean, the moment where I literally almost had a tear in my eye where I was so pleased was when I heard Stick It Out when they premiered it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's like, what I'm saying. This like, is more like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, what's going to happen so is you're going you're gonna to hear the Rushcast episode of Presto and it's going to completely change your mind. That's what's going to happen. Okay, well, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm very, I'm very open to having my mind changed. I really, really am, and I really enjoyed listening to these. That's why... As you notice, I probably you probably emailed you every single time you've made it, these ones and put in my little two cents on every single episode. But I really like listening to these, and I, you know, I'm open to seeing if you might change my mind on Presto. <laughs> so. I like it. I'll take that challenge. Uh, yeah, Mark Anthony, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, no problem. This was fun was and on one of my favorite albums, and I want to thank uh, I want to thank Ron Reed for doing our intro again. That was really cool. And nice of him to cut those together. Those are actually we get a lot of really good feedback on those, Ron. People who really enjoy them. So thank you for yeah, that. Awesome. And uh, again, thank you to Mark for being a good sport because all week he's been like, "All right, when are we going to record?" And uh, I'm like, "I don't know, I don't know." And then I <laughs> I called him today and was like, "Right now, we're recording in five minutes." <laughs> and he was all about it. So thanks for being a good sport, man. No problem, man. I really, really enjoyed it. All right, everybody, we're going to see you soon. We're going to see you actually in exactly seven days for another uh, fantastic record, regardless of what you say. And hold your fire. We'll see you guys soon.